Welcome to Rethinking Neurodiversity, a podcast looking at the history, triumphs and challenges of divergent thinking. We're your hosts, Fran and I Ling, and together we'll be talking to neurodivergent advocates, experts and those with lived experience to rethink the narrative around neurodiversity. This podcast is brought to you by Noetic Health, the intelligent neurodiversity app for adult ADHD, autism, dyslexia and dyspraxia. In this episode, we're speaking to AJ Singh about depathologizing neurodivergence. We talk about decolonizing our mind bodies, embracing neuroembodiment, and unmasking. Enjoy. Hi, AJ. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Fran. Hi, Eileen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you on this week's episode. The topic of this week is depathologizing neurodiversity. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. But first, can you give us a bit of an intro into the world of AJ? Yeah, so um, I'm AJ Singh. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I work in um, social justice um, and I, um, I'm autistic, I'm ADHD. Um, I'm global majority, um, I'm non-binary trans, um, and so obviously I have a bunch of identities that have meant that I'm drawn to, to this kind of work anyway, and I work for a company called Mission Equality, and we are designing a curriculum uh, which is kind of the world's first qualification in, in equality. Our mission is to, to help everyone be empowered to be leaders to create an equal world. I also, uh, I'm founder of a company called Watistic Wayfinder, which is um, aimed at working with uh, neurodivergents who can access whiteness. So whether they uh, identify as white or they have white privilege through being pale skinned to help them to unlearn their ableism, their racism, and to have more compassion for their own neurodivergence and be able to hold themselves to account whilst looking after their neurodivergence on a journey of anti-racism and anti-ableism. I, uh, my background is in kind of people and culture uh, and HR, um, and I kind of did that in the private sector in um, tech startups for a number of years. And I, I really felt like I was kind of trying to change the system from the inside is, is how I felt. I was raised in a very socialist family, so politics was kind of the bread and butter of our of our conversations, like around the dinner table, we talked about politics and my family are very, very left leaning. So I was, I I grew up with this sense of, you know, justice and wanting to make the world better, um, but ended up in, in kind of very corporate capitalist um, jobs and was sort of trying to, you know, change things from the inside. But I, I became sort of um, disillusioned with it um, and ended up suffering with burnout, um, had lots of jobs that sort of, uh, didn't go the way I wanted them to. And I think it's ultimately because I was trying to sell something that they didn't want to buy because I was trying to, as I say, change the system from the inside. I also didn't know I was autistic. At the, well, I didn't know I was autistic. I didn't know I was ADHD. Um, I always felt different. <laughs> I've always felt different. I always um, felt like I didn't fit, um, but could never really understand why. Um, and so came to that later um, but it was in my journey of kind of trying to disentangle myself from corporate jobs that didn't feel like they were I was doing the work I wanted to do or that I was having the impact I wanted to have. Um, I essentially realized I needed to start decolonizing myself and my life. Um, and this concept of decolonization was something that 
I had come across in 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 discussions around social justice, but it is separate. It's not it's not social justice. Decolonizing is is um, ultimately about um, trying to rid ourselves of the colonial constructs that we have been indoctrinated with, and then trying to create a world that is decolonized, um, and that involves uh, sort of a number of steps that are are, are separate from social justice. But I realized. Um, that I needed to start on the work on myself. And it was in that journey that I was discovering aspects of who I was that I had previously been ignoring or cutting off parts of myself or trying to mold or change parts of myself. Um, and so I'm, a, you know, late, late, late diagnosed autistic, which is a kind of we're hearing more and more of, um, I think, because we're seeing particularly in AFABs, people who are assigned female at birth. There's a lot of masking. There's a lot of um, trying to conform to colonial constructs of normal, um, and so a lot of us, uh, it's, it's you know, and we don't have the information. We didn't have the information. We didn't have access to the education that would allow us to understand ourselves. And so I think I'm one of those people who's who's come to that later. And I think largely that's through burning out. It's through it's through the depression, the anxiety, and the you know uh, crises that come with trying to fit into a mold that doesn't fit you and that actually is, is harming you. Um, so that's what brought me to, to kind of neurodiversity. Um, I'm passionate about, um, essentially all aspects of, of justice and, and trying to create a world where, where we're all getting our needs met. I do think that I'm, I'm particularly fascinated with neurodiversity. I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist, um, as well. So I think that's, that kind of speaks to my fascination with how the central nervous system works. And yeah, that's, that's me. I mean, I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> well, thanks, AJ. It's great to hear more about what got you interested in neurodiversity and all of the other social justice areas you work in. Um, it's always interesting to see your work. But were you a neuroscientist before you realised you were autistic and ADHD? I discovered it part of the way through my degree. And do you think that contributed to you finding out who you were? Yeah, so it absolutely contributed to me figuring out who I was, I think, because I was always fascinated by people's behaviour, but also but what drives people's behaviour. Um, I think I, I've always sort of intuitively thought, well, if someone's behaving in a certain way, there's a reason. Um, and often the reason is something that we don't understand. I've always seen behavior as communication, um, that someone's trying to convey something and ultimately that's often misunderstood. And so that fascinated me and I wanted to understand what's going on behind the scenes. And there was kind of a whole host of other reasons that I was I was drawn to neuroscience. Um, but in that, you know, we studied neurodivergence to some degree um, and it, it's still, it's taught, it is pathologized in the way that it's taught as well. So, uh, you know, I was learning about it as a pathology um, and it didn't feel right that I was learning about it as a pathology. And that was kind of one of several sort of things that came together at that time uh, for me. It was also during the pandemic. Uh, well, obviously, I know we're still dealing with COVID, so I, I don't like to talk about it in the past tense because I think that does a disservice to everyone who's still suffering, particularly people who are immunocompromised. But during the sort of first wave of lockdowns, um, where, you know, this colonial construct of kind of the rat race and all of that, you know, was was removed and I was at home and I was allowed to think and breathe and not having to conform um, and a lot of time to think and reflect. And um, whilst doing this degree, 
and it you know a, a bunch of things came together and it was like oh actually I yeah I'm autistic and there's there's definitely other stuff going on here as well it was also during that time that I realized I was non-binary so there was a you know there's a lot of self-discovery that was going on when I'd been given the space to stop performing that performing element is very is is very much part of this so you know if we are to depathologize neurodivergence we have to recognize that normal is a performance um, normal is not something that is real or exists or is tangible. It is, it's a construct and we can all perform normal to varying degrees. Some of us can't perform it at all. Uh, non-speaking autistics can't perform normal. Um, and so they are pathologized. But some, some autistics, some ADHDers can perform normal. Um, that's what we refer to as masking or what I, re- I refer to as neuroperforming. And we do because it's a survival technique. You 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 perform it so that you can um, go to school and you can have friends and you can be treated well by other people and you can impress your parents and you can get a job and then you can feed yourself and clothe yourself and put a roof over your head. So it's, it's absolutely not dramatic to say that this is a survival technique. Um, and so if you have to do it to survive, how are we possibly going to know the extent to which we actually truly vary um, because we're not being given the opportunity to understand ourselves really um, we're being told no this is this means there's something wrong with you um, and this is this is normal and this is what you should be um, so that pathologization I think very very early in our lives starts molding us to act and, and perform in a certain way yeah my background's in neuroscience as well so I completely agree with you when you were talking about how we're taught neuroscience, you're taught that there's like this normal brain. And again, like I'm using that word in quotation marks, but you have this normal brain and then any any neurodivergence is presented as something that's kind of other or not normal. But could you tell us what you actually mean by depathologizing neurodiversity and the ways in which neurodivergence is currently pathologized? Okay, so so if we're if we're pathologizing something, essentially we're saying it's not normal. That it means that there is something that is uh, abnormal, uh, whether we consider it illness or you know a condition that is disabling. Um, but it's it's essentially considering something not to um, align with with normal, um, whether that's kind of from a, a a physical point of view or a mental point of view. Um, and I think the pathologizing of neurodivergence we well we know because we we, it's they're considered I mean autism is still considered autism spectrum disorder it's a disorder it's considered that you know there's something wrong with you and um, all types of neurodivergence are named as conditions or disorders um, that you have to be diagnosed with and what you get diagnosed with illness right you you know so so I think that the whole point is that um, people who are who don't identify as neurodivergent aren't going to a doctor to get diagnosed as normal. <laughs> and so um, this pathologization is going, there's something different about you. Um, but really what it means, and what it means for people who are neurodivergent, is that we will not get our needs met without additional support within this current system. Uh, support this system will not give us as standard. Um, and that's the impact of pathologizing anything. But it's the impact of pathologizing neurodivergence is that our needs particularly, you know, the, the, the needs that we have in thinking and communicating differently will not be met unless we get additional support. Yeah, and it's also like your needs won't be met and that support often is not available when 
you don't have a diagnosis, when you haven't been to the doctor and explained all of these like difficulties that you're having. And I say difficulties because so much of neurodivergent is like so negatively looked at, like there's so many traits and that's all a doctor will ask you about. They'll ask you about like how it impacts your life in a bad way and what like how you're different from everyone else. And what we talk about a lot is like, why is everyone focused on that? Why is that the most important thing to identify? Why is it like, are you bad at this? Are you bad at that? It's like, we don't, we don't speak about that in general everyday life. We don't just ask people what they're bad at. So why are we deciding you have this label because you're bad at these specific things? Um, it's really frustrating. It's incredibly frustrating. And I think, you know, I, I have seen people who are getting their needs met through having, you know, um, enough money, through having a support ne- network. They're aware of what their needs are. They're aware that they're neurodivergent. They're not diagnosed uh, because they can't get through the um, the system to be diagnosed because they're not suffering enough. And I think this is a really interesting point. This is like unless you're suffering, you can't be diagnosed with something that just... <laughs> But this is what the whole point is, that unless you're suffering it, you're not considered to actually even have this way of thinking in the first place because it is considered a pathology. So if you're not suffering, you can't have it. And that just shows what's wrong with the whole system in the first place. Francesca, you were talking about focusing on the bad and the negative. And it's like, I do think there's a question. And now we're talking about the social model of disability is that if we didn't have the current setup, would as many people be having difficulties? And that, you know, that the, there are some things that will affect someone every day. I However, if those needs were just seen as needs that we would want to support as a community, as a society, then there would be fewer difficulties involved with actually existing in that way. Um, And also, I do think we need to introduce neutrality, more neutrality when we talk about mind-body differences. I refer to mind-bodies a lot rather than neurodivergence, um, which uh, Dr. Nick Walker, I think, coined that that term. And it's it's really trying to make sure that we're thinking about not just the brain, um, but like the whole system, um, because our nervous system is, you know, impacting everything. Um, And so that neutrality towards the mind body to say this is not a good thing or a bad thing it just is and and what um, and therefore what does that mean um it might mean that i need i have this particular need um and how can that need be met but then there is a wider discussion around individual needs versus community needs and um whether a community can see to that need and that is i mean we should be having those kind of conversations but when we're, we're not because our, our individual needs are so underserved and our community needs are so underserved we're not at the point where we can start looking at that tension yeah um agreed i mean it's clear that society has been built around the needs of a specific group or type of person and assumes that everyone who has slightly different needs has something wrong with them um for example there's so much negative framing around things like time management so I recently came across some writing around polychronic versus polychronic and monochronic time, which I think is a much more affirmative way of framing um, how someone perceives time. And it's mainly around how where monochronic time is where you see time as a fixed structure or fixed concept. And generally people with monochronic time um, find it a lot easier to to be at certain places or do certain things at certain times um, because it's a lot more there's a lot more of a consistent cadence whereas polychronic time times but I'm definitely a polychronic person um, and I think that's probably quite um, 
that's probably a hallmark of ADHD as well as that time is just a bit more of a fluid construct. Um, and so actually having to be at certain places or do certain things at certain times can actually be really stressful for us. Um, so it's just understanding what causes people stress, whether it's people being late, or whether it's actually having to be on time yourself. Um, and I just really like that because it's a much more, much less pathologizing way of, um, of seeing how different people do perceive time differently. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, there, um, <laughs> well, I've, but you, you experience it when you go to, to sort of countries um, where people are moving to their own rhythm and things move more slowly and that this, uh, this sense of urgency isn't, isn't there and urgency is a is a characteristic of white supremacy culture and this is something that we're living in i think again we need to we need to connect those dots and say well why is this being pathologized who pathologized us and why did they do it when did they do it and why did they do it and it was european colonizers because they had to pathologize difference to establish a power hierarchy and so that included race i mean it, it ultimately started with race and i think Anything that differs from the construct of whiteness um, is going to be seen as not normal. And being black has been pathologized. Not wanting to be enslaved has been pathologized. You know, if we look back, uh, we know that queerness of all sorts has been pathologized. Anything that differs from the construct of normal is going to be pathologized, but we should be questioning who created that construct and, and why. And every time we feel like we're being shamed, so you, Eileen, I, I imagine, and I, you know, I've I've experienced this being kind of shamed or or stigmatized for how you see time or how you operate within time. You know, we should be questioning. Well, why 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 is this construct making me feel bad? Surely we should be questioning the construct itself rather than the way I naturally operate. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's difficult when we're expected to be everywhere on time, and that's how that's just how the world is built. I mean. Other people find it easy and enjoy sticking to a strict schedule. So fitting that into a particular rhythm or fitting into that particular rhythm of the world is easy for them. But what we actually need to have is empathy for others and understand that their behaviors and, and or, or different people's behaviors and rhythms of life do fluctuate in the same way that our personalities do. And so that we can compromise and come to a place that works best for, for both or for, for everyone. I think, I think I, I don't know. I think I have a more extreme view, which is that the entire system is based on us having to do too much um, and having to get to too many places on time. And I don't think that we're built for that, any of us. And I think some of us are just more sensitive to it than others. So I I realise it's frustrating, but I, again, should we go, well, maybe we should be doing less things. Maybe you shouldn't have to get to as many places. Maybe you should have one or two places that you get to at a certain time in a week, if that works for you. And otherwise, you don't have to get to certain places on time. Why, again, why aren't we looking at that structure going, if that doesn't work for that person, and instead of there being constant frustration, maybe just their life needs to look different. And we should have a system that allows that life to look different. But to do that, we have to get rid of the nine to five, we have to get rid of earning a living and extractive labor, we have to get rid of the kind of constant need for social interaction. There's so many constructs we'd have to question. And I think that's what we should be doing. I, uh, rather than rather than compromising yeah yeah for sure so aj in terms of depathologizing neurodivergence what do you think we should be doing like as a community as like myself being neurotypical so like an ally 
ally to the community what should i be doing what changes should i be making and encouraging within other people what steps should i be taking to depathologize neurodiversity i think one thing is to is potentially to stop thinking of ourselves as neurotypical or neurodivergent um and i, that, I think that's probably controversial but uh, but bear with me if we imagine neurotypical isn't real so if, if for example fran you stopped identifying as neurotypical um and actually went on your own journey of neuro embodiment to find your own neuro normal you might start noticing ways that you're performing ways that you're neuro performing and that doesn't make you autistic or neurodivergent or adhd but it would allow you potentially to access your needs better maybe you have needs that aren't being met because it's easier for you to mask those needs than it is for example myself or eileen um, but that doesn't mean you don't still have needs that aren't being met so I would encourage everyone who considers themselves an ally or neurotypical or anyone who hasn't even thought about it to embark on their own journey of depathologizing, decolonization and um, understanding their own neuronormal. Um, because once we do that, there isn't an us and them. It becomes a, we're all on this journey to understand our needs and each other's needs. And then the second part is to dismantle the current system, which will never allow us to have our needs met and re and replace it with a system that we co-create that is fundamentally about meeting the needs of the inhabitants of this planet and that includes non-humans right so if we actually had a needs-based system it would look very different right and I, and I think it's we need to recognize and it's another thing that people who are not I guess suffering under this system what we need those people to recognize is that the system was built deliberately to disempower some and to empower others um, and that the system is not based on human happiness or growth or or well-being um, and what would a system that was based on that look like and how can you help us build that some really good points there and the first thing you mentioned about identifying as neurotypical is actually something i think about quite a lot and something we talk about a lot because there are so many traits that are associated with neurodivergence that everyone's bound to have some of them or relate to some of them to some extent, and I definitely do. But by identifying myself as neurotypical, like I'm kind of questioning whether I'm reinforcing that idea that someone has to be like bad enough, and I say that in quotation marks, to reach the diagnosis threshold and to access the support that they might need. But kind of some people might say that this approach might minimize some of the difficulties that neurodivergent people can experience in our society today especially those with higher support needs so how do you think we can bear that in mind when we're trying to depathologize neurodiversity i think i think it's more it's we're still kind of this we're operating from the current paradigm which is a which is a that sees the pathology and so what i'm talking about is not an equitable step the equitable steps are some of the things a lot of people are doing a lot of equitable work and that's great it's just not where i really sit i i'm talking about what happens next and i think we have to recognize that everyone has needs all people have needs and that some people's needs are different to others so this idea of high support needs that shouldn't be an issue. We should be creating a world where that person gets their needs met, whatever those needs are. So if anything, we should be designing around high support needs and we should normalize that. So, so the way that we make sure that those people, are, this is not about saying, oh, everyone has needs. And so 
everyone's the same and everyone's neurodivergent. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's saying it's really normal to have high support needs. And we need to make sure that those people have their needs met as a foundation of the system that we create. Um, but the only way that we can do that is if people stop seeing themselves as different from those people, because there is this kind of, you know, we don't have an equal world if if there's if we have saviors and we have people that are like, oh, what, you know, what can I do to make your life better? It's like, well, actually, I think just just focus on making a, the world equal and fair for everybody. And that will make my life better. So it's about designing a world around those who are the most deliberately disadvantaged in the current setup. And that will include high support needs, neurodivergence. But that doesn't mean that we have to keep thinking of ourselves as as neurodivergent or neurotypical, we can think of ourselves as all neuroperforming to various degrees, and that we want to create a world where no one has to neuroperform, and that everybody gets their needs met. And I think this this kind of idea that there's we can't do both that there's is 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 a fallacy that keeps us in these cycles. Yeah, definitely, um, completely agree. I was just thinking, AJ, I'd love a dictionary of all of your terms because you always use such good words to describe different experiences um and i think they're like quite often really accessible words um so well just well on that um if you so my newsletter is called mind bodies decolonized and it's on substack um and i've included definitions of the terms that i've created and then any terms that i've employed that from you know from other people in the space then i've i've defined them and credited them so um so that exists if you're if you're interested Brilliant. I'll definitely be looking that one up um, and we'll also include it in the show notes so our listeners can look it up as well. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while we're on the topic? Crumbs, yes. Okay, so uh, Mission Equality, we've just released our black paper on equalism. Um, You'll notice it's called a black paper, not a white paper. That was deliberate. Um, And uh, this is uh, equalism is an alternative to capitalism. Um, We we spend a lot of time talking about... um, equitable steps so right so how do we make the world better for neurodivergent people for black people for queer people um but our whole stance at mission equality is that we've been trying to do that for a really long time but we're all we're still operating within a system that doesn't want us to succeed and so without dismantling that system and replacing it we're never going to get there so the black paper is is suggesting an alternative obviously other people have suggested alternatives to capitalism throughout time but actually none of them have um had a foundation of anti-racism, a foundation of um, being treated equally and fairly, no matter what your identity is. There's a lot around kind of social status and wealth, um, but none of them have actually dealt with the issues of uh, that cross party lines, right? You know, whether you're right, whether you're left, you can, you absolutely can still be racist. You absolutely can still be transphobic, um, ableist. Um, And so it introduces this idea of, um, creating an equal world with a foundation of of equalism so that's out now it's really cool you can find it on our website um uh which is just missionequality.com or if you follow myself um or uh sharon hurley hall or leah J on um linkedin we're all we're all sharing it um my business autistic wayfinder would love for some more people to come see me about that um i think it's a frightening thing um to start confronting um the things that you've taken on that you don't you're not going to like about yourself so your own ableism your own racism like that they're, they're really scary things to confront um but they're part of depathologizing they're part of decolonizing and understanding yourself and understanding your neuronormal so if you are a white neurodivergent who wants to have more compassion for themselves and also to make sure that they're 
making the change that they want to make. I think there's a lot of well-meaning white neurodivergence that haven't unpacked their racism. And so they're recreating those systems within neurodivergent advocacy. And it's a real problem. And we've seen it. We've seen the fallout of that very publicly, actually, in the last few months in the neurodivergent space. So I'm offering a space for people to actually heal, to heal themselves and to understand their neuronormal um, and to hold themselves with compassion um, and a better understanding of themselves and, and show up the way that they want to. So uh, if that sounds like you, even if you're afraid of that, please come and see me. Brilliant. And are there any other resources or anything that you that have really spoken to you during your neuro embodiment journey and learning about neurodiversity? Um, so let me plug Nick Walker's book. So um, her book, Neuroqueer Heresies, uh, is excellent. It was one of the books I was reading as I was discovering kind of my own neurodivergence. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, and she's trans autistic and she talks uh, about neuroqueering. She coined the term neuroqueering and it's, it's fascinating. So she talks about mind bodies. Um, and I think it's that we all have a mind body. Um, we don't have a brain and a body. We don't have separate systems. We have one integrated system and everything affects that entire system. So it's not a name for neurodivergence because everybody has a mind body. Um, but your mind body might work differently. My mind body works differently to yours, works differently to yours. So that's where neurodiversity comes into play um is that our mind bodies work differently that book has been sat next to my bed for a long time and i keep going to pick it up but after thinking about neurodiversity all day sometimes i just need a little bit of a switch off but you've inspired me to open it up tonight i know i know i know it can i can it can feel like a lot this one is incredibly refreshing and she talks about it in such a different way i think to a, a lot of the discourse that we hear because I think a lot of the discourse we hear, particularly working within the private sector, is palatable discourse. It's palatable discourse that allows us to stay within the current paradigm. And so I would encourage you to read books written by people such as Nick Walker, who are like, no, we need a, we need a different paradigm. Because that's that, for me, is, is refreshing and nourishing and actually gives me the this sort of strength to keep to keep doing this. Um, but I find that it's exhausting when you're kind of encountering all of the like, let's tweak the current system. Um, and when you're working within the current system, trying to dismantle the current system, that's it can be it can be exhausting. So, yeah. And um, and tweaking the current system isn't working for so many people right now. So we need a, a quite a radical shift, really, or a, a change in in people's perceptions. Well, no, I mean, you can't, you have to dismantle it. You know, it was Audre Lorde that said, you, you know, you can't um, dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. And this is, this is true of kind of every aspect of trying to, to ring change. If we genuinely want a world where all of our needs are met and we disp dispense with the idea of high and low, we just say they're just needs and they're normal. Um, we'd have to be operating from a different paradigm um, where power and profit and control didn't exist in the same way. And that's the shift that I want people to get ready for and to actually work towards. And th that, that's the way we're going to, you know, we're going to actually see the change we want. And, and Nick Walker's writing is, is among the ones that I think inspire us to, to do that. Well, thank you again, AJ. It's been so nice chatting to you again. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, I, I mean, I obviously love talking about this stuff and I love talking to both of you as well. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Rethinking Neurodiversity. 
We're always open to your thoughts and feedback, so please feel free to email hello at noetic.health or get in touch through our social media. Please follow, rate, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. See you next time.